Welcome to episode 134 of Literary Disco, Relaunch at the Disco. Today is our first episode where we are officially part of Lit Hub Radio, the new network of podcasts launched by Lit Hub. We're honored and excited to be part of this new lineup, and this will mean we are upping our game here at Literary Disco with more regular episodes, more communication with you, our listeners, and hopefully, finally, maybe an updated And sleepovers. Website. There's going to be sleepovers. <laughs> And sleep. We're gonna have sleepovers. <laughs> this are we gonna have sleepovers? You're just not gonna let me talk. I thought we agreed we were gonna have sleepovers though. But that every just just wait okay. till I introduce you, Todd. Just I wait till I introduce you. <laughs> this is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. Where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. <laughs> I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey! Hi, guys! Hi! Hey! hey. Welcome, new listeners. So We're so happy to meet you guys. It's great to have you. What we want to do, um, we do want to reintroduce something we did season one in 2012, which was every week someone gets to spend the night at one of our houses in the sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Julia and Ryder ended up with kids in seasons two and four. Wow. <laughs> wow. No? We, we didn't Todd, this was such, no. I'm just, I'm sad for you. This was a chance for a fresh start. A fresh, good <laughs> Couldn't even let me get through the new yeah. intro. You know, I we even we we had emails, dear listeners, about how the intro was going to go and what I was going to say, how we brand right. ourselves, and uh, Todd just Todd just um, frothing um, at the yeah, mouth, a lot of rage. So I, think, I, I, th I think we have a good introduction to who Todd is. <laughs> um, but you know, actually, I, what I thought you were going to say, Todd, is that we would go back to the very first episode, which was our sort of literary right. origin story. And I think we should do a little bit okay. of that this episode. And then um, and then I thought we should talk about, uh, since it's the end of 2018, a wonderful, wonderful year all around. I think we can all agree. Um, <laughs> hey, the last, the last uh, month. But, and maybe, maybe a great yeah. year in literature. Yeah. yeah. And I, but I also think it's a, it, you know, the goal for what we were going to say is that as we'll each talk about the best book of 2018, but that would be a personal book, not just a book, not necessarily a book that was published in 2018, uh, which we've done in past years as our sort of year end uh, best of, but maybe just what, what's the best book we read this year. And if that can sort of segue into an introduction of who we are and how we approach literature in general, or what kind of readers we think we are, and maybe a little bit about, um, you know, our backstory as yeah. friends too. Yeah. Wow. So uh, who wants to go first? Julia. Julia should go first. I'll uh, go first. 2018 is the year of the woman, they say. Oh, God. Well, it's almost over, so maybe I could take a nap. Uh <laughs> you, should, you should run for Congress, though, in 2020, Julia. This, you know, Ladies and gentlemen, what you're listening to today is the launch, not just of Literary Disco on LitHub, but the launch of Julia Pastel's Quest for Congress. Wow. Todd, you know, I like to do my community work from the inside all right <laughs> deep state leave me alone deep state shit. gotcha uh <laughs> not that anyone who's even has that like seed of an idea of i should run for congress should probably do it because why not you know yeah um anyway uh the book that i picked and i have to tell you guys i didn't like comb through all the books i read this year because the most amazing thing happened to me on black friday which is i I had no money and I wasn't going to buy anything because I'm not consumerist like that. But I went on audible.com and I had somebody give me a gift card for two free books. And I saw in my account, I had just been racking up free books. So I had eight free books. So I went on a giant yes. spree. It was so amazing because being like you get eight free books, you could you just are like, yeah, Michelle Obama's book. Yeah, sure. Oh, this thing. Sure, 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 sure. So deep in there, like my last pick, I think, was um, a book that's been really popular this year, um, Tara Westover's Educated. Have you guys read it no, or heard about no, it yet? No, no. Oh, my gosh. Well, I since I've been listening to it, I noticed that it's now on every list, and I feel like a dumbass for not having heard of it yet. But here is the pitch for the book. Okay. It is a memoir by a young woman who grew up in a survivalist Mormon family in Idaho, never went to school, didn't have a birth certificate. 
Um, so there's that exactly. Yeah, that's what made me click. Okay, like any feral children. <laughs> oh yeah, alternative child rearing. We've talked about. Yeah, yeah Ryder, you would love this book. So, but that's only the first third of the book. So basically, what happens is she decides one of her. She's the youngest of seven kids, and she, one of her brothers basically gets out and teaches himself a bunch of math and goes to school. So she decides she's going to do the same thing. She can read really well, but she like doesn't know any math. So she buys an ACT book and teaches herself just enough math to pass the ACT. And then she and her brother basically lie on her college application and she walks, she gets into Brigham Young University and has never been in a classroom before, never interacted with mainstream people. And that is her first day ever in school. She ends up, this is all like open. The journey is the exciting part, but she ends up basically doing teaching herself everything and now has a PhD from Cambridge in history. Wow. Jesus. And she wrote Amazing. this book. She's still only 30 or oh 31. God. So it is wow. a memoir that's about, you know, this really interesting survivalist family. There's a lot about trauma and abuse in it. But it's also like at its core, this super American Horatio Alger story of like, I'm going to teach myself fucking everything. There's an incident in the book that it just absolutely blew my mind. She goes to college. She's obviously like not doing well and she's on a scholarship. And she's completely failing a class. She's getting like zeros in this class. And she goes to the professor and he's like, if you get a hundred percent on your final exam, I will pass you this class. And so she basically learns trigonometry or something in like a long weekend. I had the, and, I had the same thing happen to me in yeah. Greek and Roman mythology. Really? Yeah, sophomore year of college. That is not a difficult subject. It's not a difficult subject, but you have, <laughs> you have to put it in context. Subject. I was a, I was a drunken frat boy, and I was cheating off of this girl named Janet all quarter long, and she was also failing. Um, and so I was cheating off good, of the good, wrong good. person. And so I had to get a hundred percent or else I'd have to retake the class. And I got a 98% <gasps> and he would not give me, his name was Mr. Adams. And I hope he has some sort of skin disease. He would not give me a light the, skin disease. Uh, You've been jerk. I, I, yeah. I hope he died in a chemical fire. He would not <laughs> give me so that there was no land burnt. Todd, maybe this is the wake up call. Well, yeah. So maybe this was what made you realize. Oh, maybe yeah. I well, then I had to take the next the the same class the next quarter, and it was like a big three hundred person class. And he's calling roll, and he's like, "Mr. Goldberg," and I'm like, "Here, duh." And he said, "That's a familiar name." And I was like, <laughs> "Fucking guy, Mr. Adams, who?" Well, you think he wanted to deal with you another year? Come well, on. No, obviously I he didn't. I don't want to deal with you year over year. But it's going to make a okay, great scene of my you, memoir. Hold on. Let's see. Did you retain any information? <gasps> oh, yeah. Good one. Let's uh, test you right now. Uh, can you describe Perseus? Per, Who's uh, Perseus? Perseus had to do with the sea. <laughs> oh, God. No. Whose head did Perseus acquire? Hydra's. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Hydra's. Okay, let's do another one. <laughs> Uh, how about how about this like Agamemnon? Nope. Agamemnon was a, a, an Egyptian <laughs> like King Tut. Um, Agamemnon <laughs> is no one. Let's be clear. <laughs> I only know Apollo and Athena from the first season of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I was just gonna say. Well, back to Tara Westover for Julia. one second. Yeah, no, Fuck you're fine. You, I actually love. I made it. <laughs> You don't have a podcast. This, this podcast is really a venue for our personal vendettas. Um, I picked this book not only because it's awesome, it's so well written, but because for our listeners who don't know me, you know, I want you to understand that I am bringing the memoir point of view to the table. I We met oh. getting our MFAs in Bennington College um, a really long time ago. Um, but I have a master's in creative nonfiction and I've sometimes used it and sometimes not, but I mostly use it to really read and dissect cool nonfiction and, you know, in narrative form, a lot of times we read graphic novels, magazine pieces, and that's totally my jam. So I will always be very excited about those things. Oh, and then let's, let's hear a little bit about what your, your day job is too, what you do. 
Okay. So um, I own and operate a comedy theater in Hartford, Connecticut. I'm the managing director. It is really cool because I get to be a boss bitch, which I love. Um, wow. Empower people, yeah. do comedy. I thought you were going to say create yeah. a great community, but be a boss bitch is good too. <laughs> you know, same thing if you're, the, if you're a good guy. Um, but it also means that I have to deal with like like a leak exploded in a ceiling this weekend. Um, I also do a lot of freelancing right now. I'm grant writing for the Connecticut Science Center, which is super cool, um, and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, I do a lot is kind of my thing. I like to have a lot of projects going at once. I'd just like you all to know that Dr. Adams is now Professor Emeritus at Cal State University, Northridge. Well, you know, he had high standards, so that's probably good. He's probably still teaching that class, Todd. Maybe we should well, do an episode where we just go. It looks like there on. are current offerings that he is offering. There's a cyber course, Classics 315, that I'm clicking on. You guys go ahead. Discuss, oh, amongst yourselves. What's Classics 315? Um, it's the study of imaginative tales of the Greeks and Romans with emphasis upon literature and its impact on Occidental literature in general. That sounds great. Okay, I think I think we should sign up for it. I think all three of us should sign up for it online. <laughs> I'm That's into it. Budget. He won't do it. It's like his worst. I ever see Dr. Adams on the finally... street. It's on. We are going to Sorry. revisit this. <laughs> uh, Ryder, what did you read? Or what was your favorite? All right, well... Yeah, so th this was this was th I I picked this book for reasons that'll be be obvious right away, um, which is um, it, but I did read it this year, but it came out a couple years ago. It came out in two thousand sixteen. It's a collection of essays called "This Thing We Call Literature" by Arthur Crystal, and I had never read any Arthur Crystal's work before, but I guess he's a book reviewer and a literary. Uh, critic that's been out and about for a long time. I think he's English. Uh, I actually don't know much about him. Um, but I read something that he wrote um, early on this year, and I was so blown away by it. One of the essays that it does appear in this book it appeared somewhere. I can't remember where. But so I went and bought this book, and um, it's really he's really a clear, simple, direct writer. Uh, but I just feel like this book struck a chord with me this year in particular, um, and then in general, because I, I feel like, um, you know, we're in this moment in the Trump era uh, where there's all this anxiety about academia and the, the sort of culture war that we've found ourselves in now. I mean, there's lots of culture wars going on, but one of them that I've been sort of mulling in my head like a lot of this year is this sort of this um this notion that like postmodernism destroyed academia um i don't know if you guys have run into like a version of this but you know there's this argument that in the 60s and 70s all the great intellectual movements were sort of you know feminism uh post-colonialism um all these like uh, Marxism to us or socialism to a lesser extent, but they were all these like splintered movements that kind of all fall into the, the, the general umbrella of like postmodernism. And the goal of so many of those movements was to dismantle the authority of traditional Western mm -hmm. culture, right? Like this idea that like, the old white men who, you know, it starts with Greek and Roman culture and then like goes quiet during the Middle Ages and then rebirths in the Renaissance and like all of our philosophy and literature comes in this like great line of wonderful, you know, and so, so much of postmodernism was about dismantling those ideas and saying like, no, of course, those ideas were only possible because so many groups of people were marginalized and uh, erased or literally oppressed or repressed, you know, so there's... Um, there was a lot of amazing arguments that came out of the postmodern movement, but there's this sort of moment now in the post-truth Trump era where people are looking around and saying, is postmodernism responsible mm. for some of this? You know, because a lot of the Trump fake news argument, for example, fits perfectly with a lot of the postmodern arguments of, um, you know, that whoever is in control of the story, that is truth for that person and that there are multiple truths. And then of course you have a lot of the uh, identity politics stuff that was birthed with um, postmodernism being turned against it now uh, by a lot of these white supremacists 
saying things about white culture. They're co-opting arguments from, you know, postmodernist movements that were about reversing the existing hierarchies of white supremacy are now being co-opted ironically by white supremacists. So there's this weird like, like moment right now. Um, and I've, you know, I, there's a lot of like cultural alarmists on one hand, you, if you listen to like other podcasts like Joe Rogan or uh, Sam Harris, there's a lot of like liberal white men who are intellectuals sort of like doubling down on old school culture right now. And they're all kind of aggressively fighting what they see as like the dangers of identity politics. And I, while I, I agree with a lot of their points sometimes, like for the, for the most part, I really disagree with their tone. And uh, I also disagree with the premise fundamentally that this like 60s, 70s moment of postmodernism is necessarily opposed to the, the old school tradition of mm -hmm. the Western canon. I don't think that those two things necessarily need to be pitted against each other. And that's kind of a weird, and I'm, I, I haven't really heard anybody put forth a, like a good compromising argument yet, but I would like to <laughs> because my, my origin story is that I started college at Occidental College in LA, which is like um, just the- it, Obama we, went there. My- yeah, Obama went there, and 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 like when I went there in 1997, when I started going to college there, the big claim to fame was that it was the most diverse school in the country, um, and it was a, a, a explicitly a project of postmodernism and identity politics uh, within our classrooms. We were reading Derrida's Freshman, which is kind mm -hmm. of crazy. Like I don't know if it, if you guys have ever read any Derrida, but it's impossible to read and. But the idea was this: that that we were we spent a lot of time on ethnic studies and race theory and feminism and social uh, um, socialism and Marxism and you know all these huge uh, semiotic theory. Like they threw it all at us as part of our general curriculum. And then after two years there, I transferred to Columbia University in New York, which is one of the holdouts for the Great Western Canon. They Columbia requires of all of its students, even like engineering students and scientists, to take two year-long courses in the Western canon. They require other things too. You know, we, we had to take courses that studied on histories of uh, non-Western uh, cultures. And, you know, there were all sort of mitigating, like mitigating classes. But in general, the thrust of Columbia is much more sort of old school, Enlightenment era, uh, old white man tradition. And uh, proudly so. Um, and in my mind, those two things sort of worked well together to form the way I approach a lot of subjects in the world, all of which is a really long way of getting to Arthur Crystal's, the, the thing we call literature is really a defense of the canon, uh, ultimately, uh, or at least it's a defense of the idea that we should be arguing for a canon or that we should be arguing for the value of literature, um, and that the argument should continue, basically. And he has such a measured, simple, uh, enjoyable tone. Um, let me just find a good section that... Um... This is the real shit, you guys. <laughs> Hunting around for your page. <laughs> okay, so throughout... <laughs> throughout this book, he has essays that sort of pick apart, a, you know, a sm sort of smaller... Uh, versions of this idea and like like uh, the a good example is he has an essay that's just about uh, about poetry and he's basically saying like we've gotten to the point now where we've stopped considering the way poetry sounds so he says something like this it's presumptuous of me to say it but i don't think our poets live for poetry as much for the act of sharing their thoughts and feelings in the guise of poems they're forgetting that poetry is a craft and a discipline before it is a reason to write about oneself so He's in one way that sounds very conservative, right? Like we have to know what the old school forms, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that we need to listen to, we need to consider that poetry should sound nice mm -hmm. in order for us to right. want to revisit it, which is kind of a basic point, but it does feel like that's gotten lost in today's assessment of poetry. And another point he says, so what I'm asking is, do I really want to spend time figuring out the associations between words on a page and the experiences they're meant to distill if the sound of the poem doesn't mm -hmm. please me? Mm -hmm. Um, and so like he has simple essays like that. And then near the end, he gets a little bit more sort of hard hitting with this essay that he's, it's called the shrinking world of ideas. And this is where he sort of brings home the thesis of this entire little book. 
um, he says, he's describing the historical movements. Art and literature survived the onslaught of critical theory, but not without a major derailment. The banal, the ordinary, the popular became the focus and the conduit of aesthetic expression. And this is the major thesis of the book is that nowadays people write things or critics de determine the value of something based on popularity first and foremost. And that sounds simple. It's like, yeah, and you know, in, in the world of social media, like, yeah, the, the book that gets the most clicks or gets talked about the most gets bought the most, which then that kind of book keeps getting written. And that kind of like, okay, well that, you know, is that so bad? And he's kind of saying, yeah, that is bad. And I think that that's a valuable argument that, that we should be writing literature and we should be thinking about literature, not necessarily just in terms of whether it's popular, but why somebody decided to write something. And if they did write something just to be popular, that's fine. You know, that's what I think a lot of genre writers seek to do. But when we're evaluating literature with something like our podcast right here, um, is it our job to also look at the intention behind the author? And isn't it our job also to really evaluate it not just on that intention, but uh, whether it accomplished something morally, ethically, uh, culturally, of value that's going to sustain beyond that this popular moment. The, these are the questions I ask my students all the time. Like, why are you writing this? Not, not just you know, oh, I want to write a book, but what are you, what are you feeling inside yourself by writing this? What are you trying to say? Um, I don't necessarily always think that someone has to write a book and there has to be some giant social change behind it or some movement, but anything that's worth writing is worth having um, some backbone to it, you know, right. some other level to it. So that even, you know, even the most commercial fiction, I don't, I don't know any commercial fiction writer who just thinks, eh, I'm just writing popcorn. Like even, like I was talking to my brother the other day and he writes commercial fiction but like in his last two books, he was also skewering um, the way thrillers work and action adventure novels work and the lust that readers have to see giant cities blow up and have people dead all over the place and how um, people, when they read a thriller or watch a movie, they don't get upset with all the dead bodies. But if you kill a dog, that's it. It's over. You, know, you can't kill that dog. And like that was just a, a little current running through his book that maybe if you're reading it on a cruise ship, you don't pay attention to, but it's the thing that was sustaining him to get up and write the thing every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting to marry that question writer with the earlier shorter essay of like, shouldn't a poem sound good? So like, to me, it's like, we also have to think about the, the difference between enjoyable and popular and think about where popularity comes from. This something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how many of our like great American minds this decade what they're in the right. marketing industry. Right. So like our marketing as a nation is like so fucking amazing, you know, that popularity is coming from like a lot of the books absolutely deserve it. But there's also books that are very enjoyable, pleasurable, easy to read, whatever, you know, we equate with popularity sometimes that are meaningful, not right. found, you know. And so it's like, what can you find that both meets meets that greater social or inner purpose need and is enjoyable to read. That's the marriage that I'm always looking and, for. And, you know, I think in difficult times, you get books that have more social responsibility in them that become popular. So even um, even like like one of my favorite books this year, uh, which is not going to be my favorite pick, so I can mention it here, a book like uh, There, There by Tommy Orange, which was the best novel I read this year. Um, it has this huge social question behind it. And has all these huge questions about identity and about place um, and about where you belong in a world where you don't fit. All of it taking place in uh, in Oakland, which, you know, is a second city of, of great proportions. Like it's always going to be in the shadow of San Francisco. Um, and it, the title of the book comes from what Gertrude Stein said of Oakland, which is that there is no there there. Um but it it's a novel that asks these sort of larger questions, but it's still, it's been a big, huge bestseller, but it's also about more than anything else, what it means to be a Native American 
when that hardly means anything in the city of Oakland. You know, that this right. it, the, the narrator in the book says he feels more like a, a native of Oakland than a Native American. Um, and so, like, that's I think that plays into that larger question of entertainment also being fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, I think that what he's what what Arthur Crystal's responding to, on you know, on, on, there's the two things he's the two major things that he's responding to. On one hand, you have the, um, the the question of popularity and popular literature, which I I, I do think has just been flattened. You know, like I, it, there's this sense that by we've de democratized taste to such a degree that. Uh, even, you know, I feel this even when people ask me, like, what should I read? Or what, you know, I, I have this immediate insecurity about having taste or an immediate insecurity about saying, like, well, that don't read that book that, you know, if you if you tell me that you like, you know, Sweet Valley High genuinely as an adult. How I can't help but be fucking like, on, dare crap. you? And like, let's. <laughs> <talk about> <laughs> <laughs> So I think I think that he's making an argument against that, yeah. know, that, but then also he's making a very pointed argument against the the academic postmodern tradition, um, and I think he's making it very well in a way that like these these other sort of cultural curmudgeons are a little too outspoken and a little too harsh about it. He so basically sure. he's my favorite curmudgeon <laughs> right now, and he's the he's the curmudgeon that when I read I go. You know what? Yes, like I like how tentative you are about your curmudgeonliness, and I like that it's you're willing you you're putting it out there as a feeling, and with all your sort of education behind you and all your reading behind you, and you're putting your taste out there to be debated, and it's just the right tone I think that we need in today's world, um, and it's a tone that I hope to continue to strike like on this show. You're um, my favorite. I am very. You're my favorite curmudgeon. Right? Yeah. You're my. You're my favorite. Yeah. I feel like that. One. Writer. Writer's like a seventy-five. <laughs> Old man in a hot thirty-five-year-old's okay. body. Tone it down. Yeah, <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> but I think that's such a good intro writer to this show because it's also like I think the perfect reader or the reader I want to be, let's say, is I want to be open to everything, but not apologize for having a specific kind of taste or thinking about what I read. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like right. there's. Or totally. believing in the project of taste. You don't, no yeah. one needs to apologize yeah. for thinking Rupi is a terrible poet because she is right. objectively a terrible poet. And you can disagree yes. with me. And if she moves you, that's perfectly fine. I also like Neil Diamond. And I recognize that not everybody likes Neil Diamond, but he moves me. And therefore, you know, I'm a fan. But Rupi, if she's your favorite poet, that just means you've not read So, Todd, before. why don't we segue to you? <laughs> why don't we segue to you? Uh, so I've got a lot of favorite books. So Orange, or Tommy Orange is There, There was my favorite novel of this year uh, by far. Um, and my favorite book actually was um, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham, yeah. which we read on this show. Um, because it touches on everything that I'm into. Now I'm a, I'm a novelist, um, but I'm also, I write essays as well. Um, so that's my favorite book, but the book that had the most importance to me actually was something different. But first, let me just say, Killers of the Flower Moon, one of the absolute best nonfiction books I've ever read, um, because it also, it, it's telling a story that not many people know about the, the murders of the Osage tribe for their money and their oil. Um, but it's also about the start of the FBI um, it is a story of um, mundane, murderous evil, um, of a vast American cover-up of the indignities done to Native Americans. Um, it is a uniquely American story of crime, murder, sex, abuse, uh, and memory, above all else. Because people have forgotten about this horrible and thing. Oil. And oil. Um, <laughs> Money. And, and also oil. about the press. It's a story for our time, on top of everything else, because it... It, it ends up being one of these tales that will happen again in some other thing. But the book that um, I've gone to more often than not for sort of strange edification is a book we've not talked about on the show. Um, and it's a book called Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump 
by Jonathan Weissman. Uh. Um, Jonathan Weissman is a writer for the New York Times. He's an editor at the New York Times. Um, and during the uh, elections, he was really targeted by uh, white supremacists online and Nazis online um, and just was viciously attacked by, by white supremacists. Um, and I'm a big fan of his writing anyway. He's, he's, a, he's a, a wonderful um, essayist as well. He wrote the book or the novel number four, Imperial Wayne, which was quite book or quite good book a few years ago. Um, but this book goes through sort of the rise of anti-Semitism in America in the last couple of years. Um, it goes through um, the way social media has affected anti-Semitism and what it means to be Jewish. And then it essentially provides a guidebook on how to be an activist Jew in America today, particularly if you are a writer. So, for instance... Um, Late in this book, he writes, In the early 1930s, before Hitler legitimately came to power, consolidated control, and burned the Reichstag, the brown shirts clashed furiously with violent German communists. At one point, it wasn't clear which side would prevail in these running street brawls. Germany could easily have swung far to the left, link arms to Stalin's Soviet Union. But the German people largely stayed silent, shunning both factions, unable to take sides. That anarchic moment in history always comes to mind when I watch the black-clad, masked Antifa protesters preparing with relish for their showdowns with the khaki-wearing alt-right. Antifa cannot be allowed to represent the most vibrant form of resistance, not if the great mass of the American electorate is to join in, nor can the student activist whose first method of confrontation is the heckler's veto. The cause of free speech must be returned to its pluralistic open roots, not ceded to the promulgation promulgators of hate, seeking some purchase on a false moral high ground. This is an era that calls for fearlessness, not heedlessness, but also for a refusal to play along. We as Jews are strong in our cohesion and have everything to gain in standing up for our commitment to liberal internationalism in the oldest, least partisan sense of the phrase. I read that and I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm ready. And I have spent the last year of my life doing that. Um, I have written about anti-Semitism when I have seen it. I have called it out in public when I have experienced it. I have uh, notified local politicians that I see what they're doing and that they will be held for account. And I have done it and I have done it and I have done it. And it is the only thing yeah. that lets me sleep at night. And this book taught me how. Um, and... It's it's not um, you know it's not a life changing uh, book of nonfiction. You won't read this and be like, oh, I shall pass this down. Um, but as a Jew, you know we're only one percent of America's population, and it feels good to know that we're not alone. That's always nice. Um, but it it's good to know that the way I feel as a Jew who writes um, that I'm I'm not feeling it alone. Um, and so when I go out there and I write things like. I, a couple weeks ago, um, after the shooting at uh, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, I wrote this long um, op-ed for a newspaper. And I got, I don't know, 500 emails from readers around the world about it, saying that they were too afraid to say the things that I had said. Um, and that they felt less alone from me saying what I felt. And that by calling things what they are, by giving names to certain things um, that they felt empowered. And, you know, I've never felt better about a thing I've written mm. in my entire life than, than that. Um, but then the flip side is that I got 200 emails from people saying, we're yeah. going to fucking kill you. Um, and, or maybe 200 emails from the same four right, people right. over and over yeah. again. <laughs> I get, you get a lot of that on Twitter where it's just a bot basically yeah. saying Nazi shit to you. Yeah. Um, but it, it also tells me that what yeah. I wrote was effective. And and I got that from the lessons that Jonathan Weissman suffered through to get to where he got um, in, in 2016. So that book had the most profound effect on me. Um, and so it's my it's my book for the Jews to read this year. It, it 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 got some nice press in places, but it didn't. It wasn't a huge seller. 
But um, if you're sort of a young activist Jew and are interested in whether or not you're going to be killed for your thoughts, I recommend <laughs> Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump by Jonathan Weissman. But if you just want to read a great book, read Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. Oh, and one other thing, you got to read Digest by Gregory Parnlow. Yeah. The best book of poetry I think any of us read all year. God, I love that book. Yeah. So yeah, that book just to go back to your book for a minute, Todd, I yes, I have no intellectual purpose chiming in here, but like that line about fearlessness, not heedlessness is so resonant with me because, and this is what I was joking about in the beginning about doing my community work underground or from the inside or whatever. It's like, I have found it, very challenging in a positive way to actually put my money where my mouth is in terms of running my little tiny, tiny, tiny comedy business. And I was just telling you guys before we started recording that, you know, we had some hate speech happen on our stage and an open mic, which is like completely normal. But, you know, I spent so much time and other people did too thinking like well it, it it is so easy it is the easier thing to be like that's what open mics are the end you know let it give them another day mm. um and we decided not to do that and <laughs> one of the comments we got today which is like kind of hilarious so we could have put out a statement that was just like we're not doing this anymore but instead i put out a statement that was like there was hate speech we're not doing this anymore. It was longer, but um, someone was like, why didn't you just say that it didn't earn money and that's why you're canceling it? And I was like, because that's <laughs> not the reason. And I was, I've been reflecting on that. And I'm like, there are so many easy ways to just kind of like do the right thing right. kind of, but look the other way. And I have been spending a lot of. We had a plumbing problem and the entire theater. Basically but only on Mondays. Like so like it's been really great and really hard to say like how do i be fearless in everyday life not just when i'm in a position of power or if i'm a congresswoman or whatever it you know what it's it's hard and it's not to say that i'm fearless but like right after the elections in 2016, my uncle, who's this big Democratic supporter, um, you know, like Obama sleeps in his house. Um, I called him and I was really distraught and I was like, I, I didn't do enough. Um, you know, I give all this money. What 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 can I do? And he said, you have got to speak for people who are too scared to speak. That's your job. And I was like, all right, well, I feel like I can do that. I can I can do that. And he said, and if they come for you, I'm a great lawyer, so I'll get you out of prison. <laughs> but that is the answer. It's like well, if awful. you know that you yourself can tolerate some level of hatred or whatever, that's fine. Right. And you and can, can, but yeah. you know others can't or are experiencing it in a different way. So right. why not take your tolerance and put yourself as a shield and a sword at the same time? Yeah. Well, and it's like my friend, um, the the novelist Natasha Dayan. She'd been one of my students, um, and she always talks about. She's a lawyer, also, and she talks about how when um, she represents someone who's been abused by their spouse or something, she says the first thing we got to do is we got to get a piece of paper between you, and that piece of paper is the um, you know the the um, what's it called the um, barrier wall. Uh, Cell membrane. The, uh, no, yeah, the, the actual legal piece of paper, the uh... contract. <laughs> no, when you're not allowed to come near somebody. Restraining order. Restraining order. Restraining order. Restraining. We got to get some paper between you. That's the temporary restraining order, and and that temporary restraining order doesn't actually, in and of itself, have much power. But having that buffer between you and the person who's abusing you might just stop them. And so let's let's always try and find that buffer first. And then work from the buffer out. And I was like, oh, that that makes a, like, a lot of logical sense. So if I can be that buffer sometimes and say, all right, I see this thing. We're going to talk about it and we're gonna, I'll, I'll be the thing that gets it out first. You know, maybe that can work. Now, oftentimes also I just get mad and tell people to eat a bowl of dicks. But uh, <laughs> maybe that's not the best of me. But, but I have. Yeah, you, you've certainly channeled a lot of energy online yeah. and into social media, which I I hate. I found myself since the midterms not checking Twitter 
Um, no, you can't. <laughs> and, and I am so much better yeah. because of that. Um, and I didn't think I was as addicted as I was, but now that the addiction is naturally tapered off because the midterms have reduced my anxieties mm-hmm. a little bit, um, I'm not checking it as much. And, and I know this is a fact because of that new Yeah, oh boy. Thing that <laughs> iPhones are telling you how much, yeah. So my screen time dropped like hours <laughs> after the election. And, um, and I'm feeling better about that. that. That's like, I think that, that um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, Todd, about so like speaking for, you know, there's those who can't speak. But like for me, getting out there and fighting and debating online made me feel worse. Yeah. And I don't know if it was that productive, like it was ever productive for me. Um, my reaction to the election in 2016 was I started getting involved in local politics and in my local community. And it was the transition for me that's been really interesting is, you know, cause now technically I'm an elected official. Um, what? Who are you? Los Angeles. I'm uh, on my, yeah, I'm on my neighborhood council. Like LA is divided into a bunch of neighborhood councils and I joined the neighborhood council and I, you know, I do, it's a voluntary position, but we have a lot of meetings and a lot do of different committees. Do you get to carry a gun? My, no, Good. No, but, but I get to, you know, I get to, I, I, my goal when I first joined, of course, was to like save the world and save my community. And like, I'm going to fix everything and I'm going to make everything better. And, and, uh, instead what has happened is I really just want to listen and like be there to help other people. Like, I don't, like it started as an activist position for me where it was like, I'm going to get in there and fix everything that's wrong with my neighborhood right. and my, my city by extension and get to know all the city council members and get to have power and, and eventually change things for the better. And what I've realized is like, uh, I, I, that's not what is needed in my community. Like, uh, you know, I live in East LA. I live in a, a rapidly gentrifying community and I, they don't need more guys like me who only moved here into this neighborhood four years ago, telling everybody what their neighborhood needs to be like. I need to just be there to like get the neighborhood to come out to events and come to our meetings and tell us what they need. Um, and that's been like a complete brain shift for me is to like, to not, I, I think I went in there going like, I'm going to get to the top and then have this great top down approach to fixing everything. And instead now I'm like, nope, I just need to show up, volunteer my time and, you know, try and try and take whatever people are giving from the grassroots level and throw it right. up the ladder as as best I can, you know, and however I can. And, and that's just, a, it's been a complete mind shift for me because I really thought like, my reaction to Trump was like, I got to fix everything. How can I, you know, and instead I feel a lot better. just like, you know, we do like movie nights where we just host a movie screening and it's like, we just try and get as many people to come out as possible and sign our mailing list. So they know that we exist as a neighborhood council because people don't even know that we exist, you know? But it's so much, it's so much more in line with your personality though, right? Or like you, you're not, you're not someone who's ordering people around. You're someone who's like, I see the best in other people. And if you just sit down and, you know, play a board game with someone you're going to get to know them better than you would if you talk than you would about right. talking about abortion right. or something you know um first of all i'm so proud of you that makes everything you just say makes me so happy um but it's it's just better like it's if you take a top-down approach then it's on you the pressure is fucking on you to fix everything instead of being like we're all gonna do this and there's probably someone here who has a good idea and how can i support you and how can i help you like better for them and it's better for you that i mean that's in fact how i've tried to um run the graduate school that i'm in charge of is that you know i could just make decisions unilaterally but the students would be upset my professors would be upset i'd be upset if you all feel like you're in something together and you're fighting for something that most of you believe in um then it turns out democracy works um, it's a lot yeah. faster to be a tyrant. Right. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Is that like that, that so many of the, the right wing in this country, their arguments are like about effectiveness. Yeah. And it's like, well, authoritarianism <laughs> is incredibly effective at getting shit done. Yeah. Like if you, so, if you I mean, that's a basic fact, right? Like if you right. just want to get transportation in place or just murder everyone who opposes you. Yeah, just, exactly. And then build it and you get it done. So that's like a horrible argument. If we're if it's just about effectiveness, of course the right wing is always gonna win. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. Well what do you guys so in twenty nineteen are you guys looking to read books that um that allow us to escape 
um, that edify your positions? Like, what what should our listeners be prepared for in this next hmm. year of listening to our show? I like to... Or just I, more of the same. Well, my reading has been fundamentally altered by this podcast in a good way in that we read so much together that, like, I would never read now, like, six memoirs in a row because we're cycling through different things. And I love that. That's always how I've read, really. Like, I feel like the pattern of read something really intense emotionally and then read something that is less of a burden is a healthy pattern for me, you know? So, like, I never want to apologize for reading, you know, a dumb horror novel right after we read, like, Sabrina, for instance, which we'll talk about in our next episode, which was a really serious piece of work. So I like to go back and forth. I don't really have any goals or, like, challenges, though, around what I want to read. I would like to find a great book that goes through the history of Funky Winker Bean. Okay. That one did not land. That joke There's got to be one of those books. <laughs> no, what I'm, what I'm saying. Anything. I don't know what Funky Winker Bean What I'm is. saying is, like, I am fascinated by all these books that are about the history of mm-hmm. some mundane thing I didn't like. Um, Funky Winker Bean was a bad uh, cartoon that was in the newspaper. That would probably be Riverdale 2 next year. It becomes <laughs> some huge cultural thing. Um, but like I, there's a new book that's coming out next year about milk and I'm like, yes, milk. Yeah. Tell me more. I, I am fascinated by how at some point in our lives, someone looked at a cow and was like, you know what we should do? We should squeeze that. And then we should drink it. Like, how did that happen? Because it's delicious. All it takes is that first sip of the milk. <laughs> oh, like, hot, yeah. hot. I mean, milk, that's like, not oh, a yeah, big leap. We all start out drinking milk. It's still. just when were we open? Yeah, but not yeah. not from a fucking uh, well, cow. No, <laughs> like you look at your you look at your mom and you think, oh, I'd like to. Well, I don't know what you guys thought, but like there is a human process by which milk is delivered, uh-huh. called lactation, I guess. And but then you don't then look at every other animal and think. I'd like to have that with well, some I agree sugary with you. cereal. Like, I want yeah. at least once a year, preferably more, to read one book that's going to make me the most annoying factoid person on the planet. That's very enjoyable. Killers yes. of the Flower Moon was that book for me this year. Um, yes, that was, that was but actually that I, book It's just year. fun to yeah, be like, yeah. did you know, I read In the Heart of the Sea, and did you know that the whaling industry, blah, 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 blah. That's the Best feeling in the world. <laughs> Bananas are doomed. <laughs> the banana you eat now yeah. is nothing like the banana you ate ten years ago. Ryder, do you? We're all doomed. But you know, you know what? Well, I, I, I think what I want to add is 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 a little different. There's a little bit of a twist on the same idea. Is that I actually care, especially when it comes to nonfiction. I really don't want to seek nonfiction books because of the subject matter. I want to seek them sure. despite the subject matter because I feel like good writing is good writing. And right. if somebody has an argument, like for instance, a, a book that we read on this show that I thought was one of the coolest subjects I'd ever heard of, but wasn't that great of a book was that Moby Duck yeah. book about the right. rubber duckies yeah. that got lost. Like something like that is frustrating for me. Cause that was like 300 and some pages where I feel like this person bungled a great opportunity. Whereas, you know, and then I feel like Flowers of the Killer Moon is an example of an amazing subject that I never heard of that then was so well written on top right. of it. But I'm more interested in finding the things like, yeah, like maybe this milk thing is, is, is kind of what I'm, you know, something that is sort of a banal, like, what, is that an interesting subject? But hopefully based on the, the writing, it will become interesting. And if I apply that to, to novels too, because I often pick novels based on, Oh, you know, I, if you read the back or you hear about it because it's an exciting story, yeah. and I think that's the wrong way. Because one of the best books I read this year that I just finished actually was The Flamethrowers by Rachel oh, Cushman. Great book, yes. Yeah. And I, and I only read that because it was on that vulture list that we mm-hmm. did an episode on earlier this year. And I, I just, I would have stopped that book if it hadn't been on that list. It took me about 200 pages before that book finally like did something to my brain where I was like, this is the best book I've ever read, but it took that long and I had to get through it because the subject matter really did not interest me. Motorcycles, racing, the New York art world in the seventies. I was like, where's this going? This is not my thing. And um, it didn't matter. It was so well written that by the end, 
Um, so I, I, I want to find more books like that, that, you know, that I were recommended to me because yeah. the writing is so good or the argument is so good that I have to read it. My, my novel like that this year, I should mention was Joan Silver's book improvement, which won a bunch of awards. I had absolutely no interest in reading it, but my friend Dan Smetanka, well, not, he's my friend, but he also happens to edit my books, edited this book. And he's like, you will absolutely love this book, but it's about like a guy in prison for smuggling cigarettes and his family. And I'm like, this book has absolutely nothing interesting in it for me whatsoever. And I sat down and I opened it up and eight hours later I closed it and I was like, holy fucking shit. I'm not yeah. going to be the same person that I was awesome. eight years ago. And awesome. it's a 256 page book that all it won all these awards and it earned every single one of them. Just an amazing short book of powerful fiction where every single line you know the author considered every yeah. single word. Um, yeah. And that sort of care and concern where it's like each word is like scrimshaw, um, it, it takes your brain to another level. You know, it, it makes you see the world in a different way afterwards. That's yeah. the sort of novels I'm looking for. Books like scrimshaw. So you got to kill a whale mm -hmm. and then you got to mm -hmm. dig some shit into its bones. And then I'll read it. And more yes. poetry. We should always read more poetry. Yeah. We did good with poetry this year. That, I think we did. That Greg Pardlow book digest that we mentioned earlier, that was fantastic. We did we did really well. Well, I think it's going to be a great year. I'm looking forward to meeting all of our new Lit Hub Radio friends. Um, if you see one of us in public, we always travel together. So the other two yeah. are probably just yeah. peeing. And, together. Um, you, you'll see us <laughs> shortly. Together. And, uh, and hopefully we're going to do some more live shows this year as well. Um, typically, we've done a live show in Los Angeles. Um, hopefully we can do one uh, somewhere else this year. Um, and uh, a few of us will be at AWP in different places. But it's going to be exciting. We're going to do a lot of new and interesting things here with LitHub. So it's going to be a fun time. Um, and I'm glad to be able to do it with my Yay. writer. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. Yay. So stick around, everybody. It's going to be a great new season of Literary Disco.